Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person, at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the general Tom Thumb tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn through Barnum's own words about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. They stared with all the eyes they had. Have you ever tried to envision a visit to Barnum's American Museum? I find it is a feat of the imagination to reconcile exterior pictures of the museum with the sheer quantity and variety of artifacts, animals, and activities offered within, supposedly over 600,000 items. And I am guessing that people in mid-19th century America who had not yet visited the museum in New York City felt much the same way when they read advertisements. It all sounds, well, unbelievable. Which, of course, was the draw. Inside the five-plus-story building at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street, animals both living and stuffed were displayed, including enormous and exotic wild beasts. There was also an aquarium, a cosmorama filled with trompe-l'oeil scenes from around the world, a portrait gallery, more than 100 items of statuary, a gallery of life-sized wax figures of the famous and infamous, plus others arranged in tableau scenes, historical curiosities and natural oddities, scientific inventions, artifacts and weapons representing cultures in distant and remote places, wonders of nature such as giants, thin men, and little people, special events like poultry contests and dog shows, 
and a grand multi-story lecture hall where speakers, performers, and plays were presented. Not to mention there were musicians on the balconies, a garden on the rooftop along with a huge Drummond light, and banners and flags to catch people's attention. How on earth did all this and the visitors who flocked to see these things fit inside Barnum's museum? To tease our imaginations, let's return to a letter explored in our previous episode and pair it with a couple of rare guidebooks. The letter, dated September 11, 1845, is the one in which Barnum rather humorously expounded upon his ideas of how puffing and humbugging are best accomplished. But it continues with further instructions to C.D. Stewart, who had now recently returned to the city after touring with the Swiss bell ringers, who were English, not Swiss. Stewart, Barnum hoped, would now be turning his attention to assisting the American museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, and putting his writing skills to good use. Barnum urged Stewart, If you can remain at the museum, I want you, with Hitchcock's concurrence, to get up a catalog of the museum to sell to visitors. It should be of such a size as would cost us $40 to $50 per 1,000, and sell for only six cents each, the object being not to make money on the sale, but rather to have the price so low that many copies can be sold, and thus send into the country a good puff of the establishment. A good cut, woodcut or engraving, of the museum should be prepared and placed upon the cover, a cut that would show well, and perhaps a frontispiece should be prepared showing the museum park, Astor House Fountain, etc., as things are continually changing in the museum, the catalog should announce that a new edition would be published every year, say about 1st November. This instruction to Stewart reveals the start, in 1845, of Barnum's annual or occasional guidebook for visitors to his museum. At present, we know of only six such booklets that are still in existence, though there may be others in collections not publicized or hidden in archives amidst larger collections of family papers, an oddball item that someone just happened to save. As ephemera, that is, material never intended to be preserved, one naturally expects these slim, paper-covered guides to be rare, and they are. Here at the Barnum Museum and at the neighboring Bridgeport History Center in the Bridgeport Public Library, we are fortunate to each have one. The museum's is from 1849, the earliest surviving example we know of, while the History Center's booklet dates from 1850. A similar but different 1850 booklet, held by the Library of Congress, features a paper cover with a delightful portrait of a young Barnum. Its main purpose was to describe and illustrate the recent alterations and new decor of the museum, Barnum's $50,000 investment. A later guidebook, dating to the early 1860s, is owned by the University of Minnesota. It can be seen online through the Hathi Trust. The New York Historical Society also owns two undated booklets that are believed to date from the 1860s. There are links in the show notes to each booklet, except for the New York Historical Society booklets which are not accessible online. To Stuart, Barnum presented his idea for the catalog's introduction, noting, the work should commence with laudatory remarks on the great benefits to be derived by young and old from visiting a museum of natural history and art. He also specified specific language to include in the text. The American Museum contains much the largest and most valuable collection in America, and its proprietor, now in Europe, is making constant additions. 
is pride being to present to the public always the most varied and excellent entertainments for the established and moderate price of 25 cents. In the 1849 booklet, a fictional storyline reinforces the idea that one could barely hope to see everything, for the two boys visiting with their uncle find out stared with all the eyes they had upon entering room number one. They saw so much to look at that if their heads had been full of eyes, they would not have had eyes enough to see all that was there staring them in the face. With its tiny print and black and white illustrations, the 24-page booklet is quite different from today's museum guides. However, pictures do punctuate the text on many of the pages and show wild animals, displays of wax figures, strange artifacts, and famous performers such as the Quaker Giant and Giantess and General Tom Thumb. Interestingly, the text does not follow the plan that Barnum had laid out to Stewart. Have each article in the museum numbered. If the number is plainly written on a bit of colored paper, thus 168. It is better than to print them. Then let numbers in the catalog, of course, correspond, and give the name and country of the beast, bird, or article numbered. And wherever it will admit it, give a description of the habits and peculiarities of the article of thing being described. Thus, you will be furnishing information with the puff and making it slip down easy. That said, Barnum acknowledged, These are only hints. You and Hitchcock think of them and then go ahead. Possibly the first editions used his format. Then he tried the storyline idea in 1849 and returned to the catalog style the following year. The Bridgeport History Center's 1850 booklet reflects the format Barnum suggested. Although this is a much more substantial guide at 114 pages, rest assured it does not describe 600,000 items. The highest item number is 883. Each object or specimen is numbered and titled, and some are described. It appears that the lists follow the order in which one would view the items at the museum. Perhaps there was some logic to the sequence, but if so, it escapes me. A handful of portraits interspersed among dozens of stuffed birds? Following the artifact catalog, the museum's popular performers are described with a disclaimer that one should not expect to see all of them at the museum. Some had come and gone, of course. If you're curious about the interior, I'd certainly recommend this booklet for its illustrations of the various spaces within the museum, and for getting a better sense of what was displayed where, as the objects are listed according to the saloon, large hall, or gallery they were in. Just one more thing. The idea that these guidebooks would primarily serve as promotional material rather than as an additional source of income is quintessentially Barnum. If the thousands of booklets sold for a few cents and were brought home by the museum's visitors, who would likely show their souvenir to friends and family, booklet purchasers would essentially be paying to advertise the American Museum. To boot, word of mouth coupled with informative print material could more effectively attract people from rural and distant places than Barnum himself might reach through regular advertising. So our 1849 guidebook may be an example of Barnum's theory at work. Penned at the top of the cover is the name of the original owner, Abner G. Gould, the town where he lived, Westbrook, Maine, just outside of Portland, and a date, June 10, 1849, most likely the day of his memorable visit to the American Museum. Not only does this provide the obvious identification information, the fact of its being written there suggests that the owner valued the booklet enough to keep it from getting lost, 
which could have been while he was in the city, but also perhaps when he returned home and lent it to others to read. Who was Abner Gould? An ordinary young person from rural America, exactly the kind of person whom Barnum wanted to attract. Documents and census records tell us that in 1850, Abner was 19, living with 11-year-old Josiah Gould, presumably his brother, in the multi-generation household of the Joseph Broad family. They were farmers, the occupation Abner himself followed, eventually acquiring 20 acres of his own. He never married, and at age 33 he served in the Civil War. That his small, yellow-covered Sights and Wonders in New York booklet may have been passed around Westbrook and then survived for 171 years somehow seems all the more amazing. It's a modest bit of evidence that Barnum thoroughly understood his everyman clientele and was determined they should come and stare with all the eyes they had. A Capital Dodge for Us Creating a detailed yet inexpensive booklet that museum-goers would purchase and bring home as a souvenir of their visit and then share with others had helped transform the American Museum on Broadway from sleepy to famous under Barnum's direction, despite it being less than four years since he had become the proprietor. On September 27th, 16 days after corresponding with Stewart, Barnum wrote to his trusted manager of the museum, Fortis Hitchcock. Among other topics, this letter reveals a new plan for the guidebook, implying that the original idea for a catalog had evolved into something more ambitious. Although Barnum does not state this explicitly, the plan would require producing two booklets, one that would serve as the aforementioned catalog, and the other as a tourist's guide to the city. The latter would, of course, make a particular feature of the American Museum, with an enticing description placed front and center stage. If you recall, Barnum had a term for that, a puff. As usual, there's an interesting twist to the plan, which also gives us another avenue to consider. The emergence of the tourist industry in New York City, and the competition among many attractions, Barnum's museum among them, to get those tourism dollars. Writing to My Dear Hitchcock from Nîmes, France, Barnum hurriedly penned, I have a little more to do today than any one live man ever accomplished in 24 hours, and this is the last day of the mail for the Boston steamer. I must write, but it will be brief. Despite the need for haste, the letter is four pages long. Near the end, Barnum tells Hitchcock, If there is not at this moment a guidebook of New York printed, I think it would be a capital dodge for us to have one got out on our own account, as a matter of speculation. In a minute, we'll address the question of whether such guides already existed. In the meantime, we'll let Barnum describe his plan in more detail. Let it be of a size which may be retailed for 12.5 cents if possible, or at all events not over 25 cents, at a profit. Let it contain a map of the city and a history of all the sights and amusements of the city, including, of course, the Croton Aqueduct, reservoirs, their history, cost, etc. Let the title be something like this. Stewart's Guide to the Sights and Amusements of New York with a Map and Engravings, Price. I say Stewart's because I am thinking it would be well for us to hire him to write it, and it being ours, you must secure the copyright, say in the name of Moses Y. Beach, or of Mr. West of the Atlas. 
It must not be in our name, for the chief object of publishing it will be to puff the museum ahead of everything else, and at the same time have the public suppose it is impartial. There should be an engraving of the museum and park, also of the reservoirs, Trinity Church, etc., and the principal hotels, gardens, etc., would pay if they were puffed in it. So also would some of the downtown merchants. Then considerable might be made by inserting advertisements at a big price. Barnum thought they might succeed in selling 20,000 to 50,000 copies a year, maybe even 100,000. His plan was to have the booklets for sale in all the hotels, on steamboats, and wherever else visitors to the city would be likely to see it. These were merely half the ideas he had for the guidebook, he told Hitchcock. The rest would have to wait for another letter. As promising as the idea might be, he conceded, If you don't think well of it, let it drop. If you do, keep dark. Hitchcock was cautioned for two reasons. If this was the first such guide to the city, Barnum felt it needed to be kept as quiet as possible until it was in print, though it could hardly be secret if they were soliciting ads, so that no one beat him to it. More importantly, it could not be known to anyone other than Hitchcock and Stewart that the museum produced the publication, as Barnum wanted the puff about the museum to appear objective. Here, our curator Adrian St. Pierre paused. Could it be that there was a booklet produced by Barnum's American Museum that we simply don't know about because it uses another name as author and copyright holder? Her curiosity was piqued. Our Sights and Wonders in New York booklet dates to 1849, and as far as we know, it is the earliest surviving example of Barnum's Museum booklets. Now she wondered if in some other archive there is a hidden version dating from 1845 or so, without a catalog of museum displays or fictional tour of the galleries that would be a giveaway as to its authorship. She investigated early guidebooks and travel books online with several questions in mind. First, were there published guides to New York City at this time, since Barnum expressed uncertainty? Second, if there were, did they include the American Museum and what was said about it? Third, were any booklets titled with the name Stuart, or another name, that matched or resembled the format Barnum had outlined to Hitchcock? The answer to the first is yes. There were guidebooks specific to New York City, just being published at the time Barnum was writing. For example, A Picture of New York in 1846, with a short account of places in its vicinity, designed as a guide to citizens and strangers by Edward Ruggles, was copyrighted in 1845. This booklet, with an attached tissue-thin folding map, was republished every year and appropriately retitled with the new date. These maps have not always survived intact. From her somewhat limited research, it appears that prior to this date, most guides were geared to travelers rather than tourists, and therefore they covered larger regions, say Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York, or as in an example dating to 1836, the Traveler's Guide Through the State of New York, Canada, etc., embracing a general description of the city of New York, the Hudson River Guide, and the fashionable tour to the Springs and Niagara Falls, with steamboat, railroad, and stage routes, an account by John Disternell. Because of their different purpose, they included transportation schedules, various rate tables, lists of hotels and taverns en route, the bits of information a traveler would need. 
However, Disternell's guide is more comprehensive than some in that it also provides descriptions of sites in New York City, including the American Museum, which at that time was operated by the son and namesake of its founder, John Scudder. The answer to the second question is that Adrian did find the American Museum included in the various guides across the 15-year span she researched. The presence of a description depended on whether there was a section about places of public amusement. In some cases, the descriptive text is exactly the same from one publication to another and sounds more historical, pertaining to the previous owner, than current. John Doggett Jr.'s Great Metropolis or New York Almanac of 1846 offers a somewhat lengthier description that is more Barnum-styled than others. Interestingly, the guidebook descriptions do not mention Barnum, though Scudder's name is included despite his having died years before. One wonders if Barnum bristled at the absence of his name, though, of course, these were still early days in his career. Doggett's earlier 1844 edition of Metropolis does not include a description of the museum in the text, but does have a full-page advertisement, in which Barnum's name is prominent. As far as finding a guidebook with Stewart's name in the title or as author, she found none. Considering the possibility that a name other than Stewart's was used, she looked at others from the mid to late 1840s to see whether a puff about the museum was the obvious feature, but did not find any arranged that way. So, it may remain a mystery whether Barnum's plan was implemented or not, unless a later letter tells us. Perhaps Hitchcock knew of Edward Ruggles' publication coming out, or felt that all-purpose publications like Doggett's Guidebook Almanac were sufficient, and dissuaded Barnum. Although Adrian's quest did not turn up a disguised early guidebook from the American Museum, she did gain insight on a question she'd had for a long time. Why does the Barnum Museum booklet prominently display the title Sights and Wonders in New York instead of something like Guide to the American Museum? It seemed odd since the pages are entirely devoted to a description of the museum displays and biographies of General Tom Thumb and Barnum. But now we have caught on. The title was purposefully chosen, a ploy meant to catch the attention of every visitor to New York, recognizing that not all tourists planned to see Barnum's Museum. They might, however, be enticed after impulsively purchasing a booklet with a title that seemed to promise a full recounting of the city sites, but instead revealed the wonders of one museum. In all likelihood, it was sold in a variety of outlets, much as Barnum had advised Hitchcock, not just at the museum. Well-Dressed Dinners If you've ever seen illustrations in a Victorian-era cookbook or marveled at the lavish meals served in the Downton Abbey television series, you may be curious about the fancy foods of the past. This week, we will straddle the Atlantic to get a taste, just a little nibble, of the cuisines offered by a landmark New York City hotel and in the provincial hotel dining rooms of France, where Barnum preferred to eat while he was traveling in 1845. Granted, that was a few decades before the Downton Abbey story. This topic of food follows in the wake of our curator Adrian St. Pierre's recent research on early tourist and traveler guidebooks, and was inspired by finding among the digitized holdings of the New York Public Library a collection of 19th-century menus, the Butolf Collection. 
Adrian decided it would be fun to see if any of the menus corresponded to the time frame of Barnum's American Museum, and if they were from hotels or restaurants in its vicinity on Broadway in Lower Manhattan. Luck was on her side. She discovered that the earliest menu in the collection dates to 1843, and came from none other than Astor House, New York's first luxury hotel, a large granite edifice erected in 1836 that covered almost an entire block. Not only was this hotel on Broadway, it was situated diagonally opposite the American Museum, which suggests the likelihood that Barnum himself ate meals there, as would many of the museum's visitors. The New York Public Library collection also has an 1854 dinner menu from Astor House. We'll see what's on the two menus shortly. When Adrian began reading the letters in Barnum's copybook, she expected to see frequent references to French foods, but in the first 200 pages found only one letter that discussed experiences with the cuisine. However, there is another letter describing an innovation for the commercial preservation of food. The first complete letter in the copybook was written to the editors of the New York Atlas, for whom Barnum was serving as a foreign correspondent. In that July 14, 1845 letter, Barnum includes a funny but pathetic story concerning sausages, as well as a few comments on hotels and the unfamiliar cuisine. Let's start with a summary of the sausage story. Barnum was not above publicly poking fun at the lack of sophistication and even willful ignorance, or disinterest in learning, demonstrated by Sherwood and Cynthia Stratton, the parents of General Tom Thumb. Mrs. Stratton was illiterate, so it is said, which must have made it even more challenging for her to pick up French words and phrases on their travels. Barnum therefore found an incident involving Mrs. Stratton's ignorance and enthusiasm turned horror over a special type of sausage to be quite hilarious and worthy of sharing with the Atlas editors. Mrs. Stratton had declared that she did not care for the food in Brussels as everything was so Frenchified, but she discovered a type of sausage that to her tasted natural and was better than any she had ever had in America. So she went about inquiring what this variety was called and then ordering a supply for the journey. As it happened, the antiquarian H.G. Sherman, who was working for Barnum, was present when Mrs. Stratton happily received the package, and he asked her if she knew what Saucius de Lyon, Lyon sausages, were made of, which she did not. After hearing they were made of donkey meat, she retorted that she was not to be fooled so easily. The question was then put to Barnum's French interpreter, Professor Pinte, who confirmed that Lyon sausages were indeed made of asses. The package of sausages was immediately tossed out the window to be snatched up by a dog, and in disgust and anguish at the thought of what she had consumed, Mrs. Stratton soon became violently ill and kept to her bed for the next couple of days. That said, Barnum himself was not always wise to the foods he was eating. He noted that when dining in France, I usually expect to partake of about six dishes with which I am acquainted, and about sixteen of the composition of which I have not the remotest conception. If a person asks me if I ever ate snakes, or lizards, or anything else, I dare not answer no, for I do not know what I have not eaten in France. Barnum explained his preference for dining table d'hôte in the remark, I always do it when I can, on account of the excellence and great variety of dishes. 
Table d'hôte is a very old term that translates to table of the host, but the original literal meaning has evolved to describe a certain type of menu offering. It is equivalent to a fixed price or prefix menu that offers a certain number of courses with more limited food options than a regular menu, and all at one price. For Barnum, who was not fluent in French, a table d'hôte menu could take some of the guesswork out of ordering and offer the certainty of what he would be charged for the meal. Although Barnum had not traveled to more than a few towns outside of Paris at the time he made this comment, he confidently advised, In most of the hotels in France, large or small, they will furnish, at almost any hour of the day at ten minutes or quarter of an hour's notice, a well-dressed dinner of eight or ten dishes, and generally for three to five francs. But cleanliness was another matter, he said, describing most hotels as miserable affairs in many respects, though excellent in others. The floors of the dining rooms, he wrote, were black with the accumulated filth of years, in contrast to the pristine table linens, which were always of the purest white. The bed linens were likewise clean and unsullied, and the well-stuffed mattresses and pillows and white draperies in the guest rooms also met with Barnum's approval. These comments suggest that American hotels, and or English hotels, operated with a different set of standards than the French. Back in New York, the elegant Astor House was offering its guests an extensive dinner menu. Dinner was served in the early afternoon. The April 1, 1854 menu presented 11 courses, beginning with oysters on the shell and ending with fruit. Thinking of the way today's restaurant menus often show the dishes in categories, separating meat entrees from seafood or poultry entrees, for example, it hardly seems possible that a person was supposed to order a dish from every category or course on this menu. However, Barnum's comment on partaking of 6 to 16 dishes, and that even a quickly served meal in France included 8 or 10 dishes, makes one think otherwise. Regardless, the extent of choices is impressive. Between the oysters and fruit, Astor House offered a soup course, terrapin or spring vegetable, a fish course, boiled salmon or broiled shad, each in its own sauce, and releve, from which one could choose capon pale, garnished Montmorency style, saddle of mutton with currant jelly sauce, boned quail, and bastion of goose liver with truffles, the latter served on a pedestal. Traditionally, the releve course came between the soup and the entree. On this menu, side dishes follows releve, and they do sound very much like entrees. Filet of beef with vegetables, crostade garnished with quails, breast of chicken with mushrooms, cotelette of pigeons in a sauce, sweetbreads, organ meats, with lettuce and cream sauce, and pâte chaud, possibly a meat-filled puff pastry, garnished with reed birds and truffles. Following side dishes are vegetables, with a list of familiar choices. Green peas, asparagus, green beans, mashed or boiled potatoes, spinach, and one less familiar-sounding option, green corn, which was young sweet corn. Next, the game course offered canvasback duck, grouse, quails, or English snipe. Now, on to the sweets. These courses begin with ornamental pastry, with curiously titled dishes, Gothic Temple and Nougat of Flowers. These may be hard to imagine, but there is a link to a French website, Savoie de Histoire, in the show notes, 
that includes a magnificent illustration of 19th-century ornamental pastry, or le pâtissier pittoresque. If you are curious to see fantastic examples of such pastry, do take a look at the print, and you can read the article in English using Google Translate. The pastry course is easier to imagine, with its choices of charlotte russe, Swiss meringues, French cream cakes, Bavarian cheese, omelette souffles, and two kinds of jellies, champagne and rum. Confectionery follows, though I am unclear on the distinction between its offerings and the pastry course, since it too includes cakes, punch, almond, and Boston cream varieties, as well as ladyfingers, which are a main component of Charlotte Russe, listed under pastry. Two cookie choices are offered under confectionery, macaronis and kisses. Coffee and liqueur and vanilla ice cream are listed at the end, beneath the illustrations for fruit. Stepping back a decade to look at the August 25, 1843 menu, we have to give special consideration to interpreting its offerings. This particular menu was for the Ladies' Ordinary at Astor House, which was a dining room for women who were traveling alone, or traveling only with other women or with children. Keep in mind, Barnum made a great point of advertising his museum as being safe and suitable for ladies to visit. At the time, women were not permitted into any upscale hotel's regular dining room unless accompanied by a gentleman. The ladies' ordinary concept was still fairly new in 1843. It appeared that the first such dining room in New York City opened in 1833 at 71 Liberty Street, though Boston had one before then in its Tremont House, a slightly older twin to Astor House. The acknowledged purpose of a ladies' ordinary was to provide a safe haven for women to eat their meals, away from the gazes of men, and enjoy a menu geared to their food preferences, as they were perceived at the time, for lighter and daintier dishes. Even so, the Astor House menu shows a wide assortment of roasted and boiled meats, plus game, lobsters, codfish with oyster sauce, clam soup, not exactly light dishes amongst the nine courses. However, side dishes, entrees, may have been smaller portions, as the choices include small chicken pies, small birds Italian style, and rice cakes flavored with orange, as well as macaroni, breaded veal cutlets, and more. Oh yes, and calf's head with brain sauce. Can't forget that one. Eleven standard vegetables were offered, such as beets, onions, mashed potatoes, tomatoes, rice, and green beans. The offerings under pastry and dessert are fewer and simpler, and generally less rich compared to the 1854 menu for the main dining room. Pastry includes two kinds of pie, blackberry and cream, bread pudding, pomme meringue, fileté macarons, and broiled almonds. Dessert choices were various kinds of nuts, dried fruit, fresh fruits, oranges, watermelon, cantaloupe, and peaches, and peach ice which sounds like a refreshing choice to finish off a summer meal. And now, I confess to feeling virtually quite full thinking about the rich hotel meals Mr. Barnum enjoyed at home and abroad, though it has been fun to discover the great variety of dishes he may have eaten. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration by William Saris. 
Kathleen Marr is our Executive Director, and John Swing is our Chief Operations Officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.